Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we are in Daniel. We're continuing our study through Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 10. So if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. Now, Daniel chapter 10, we're kind of winding to the end of it. Uh, Daniel chapter 10 through chapter 12 is basically uh, one fourth, one final and fourth, the fourth vision, and it's the final vision um, that Daniel received and we're not going to get through the whole one, of course, um, today. Uh, we'll just take a, take a portion of it today. Uh, but we'll start here with chapter 10, verse 1. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till the three weeks were, three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. Lost my place here. <laughs> oh, there we go. His body was like uh, beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground." So we're told here, the beginning, uh, this vision, the timing of this vision was the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, there, I've seen two different dates for that, and they're pretty close. One is 534 B.C. and the other is 536 B.C. And uh, so you can take your pick, whatever you want. It's with two years apart from each other. Uh, but that was the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, when this took place, take place. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, as Cyrus conquered Babylon, uh, we believe, or many people believe, he was shown Isaiah's prophecies, and specifically Isaiah 44 and 45, where God had named Cyrus specifically by name in the Bible. And it happened about 150 years before he was even born. And in Isaiah, God prophesies or says that God would grant Cyrus victory over Babylon and that he would be the one to release uh, to to uh, release God's people to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and Cyrus was so moved by that prophecy that he did just that. He allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple, and uh, and so a couple years um, had elapsed. This is the third year now of, of Cyrus's reign. Daniel's age; he's probably in his late eighties to maybe his early nineties. Um, and either, either he was too old himself to go up to Jerusalem with the rest of the 
pilgrims. I call them pilgrims because they were going into basically into a frontier land. I mean, 70 years, uh, the, the place had sat, you know, uh, you know, basically sat desolate. There were probably tribal people in the area, but it was like a frontier all over again. And so either he was too old to make the trip to Jerusalem, or maybe Daniel himself felt, you know, I'm more useful here for God in Babylon, you know, because he was high up in the, in the, in, in first in the, of course, the, uh, the Babylonian reign, you know, the empire, but then also in the Persian empire. So speaking of this last vision, Daniel declares there in uh, verse 1, in the end of it, it says, The message was true, but the appointed time was long. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. That appointed time was long. It actually, the appointed time means the war. And so uh, the message was true, but the war was long. And it was either long in duration or great in scope. And when we look at the, the prophecies in, in chapter 11, and we talk about what happens in there, in the context, it really fits. Because there was a lot of battle. There was a lot of war. There's a lot of a lot of skirmishes going on during that time. Going back to verse two, it says, "In those days, I Daniel was mourning three full weeks, and I ate no pleasant food, nor meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till the three whole weeks were fulfilled." And so we have to wonder why was Daniel mourning? Well, first of all, not all the Jews were willing to leave Babylon. You know, you've been there for 70 years. Maybe some of them were born there. And, you know, life was kind of cushed there. It was good for them, I guess. And so, uh, you know, why would they want to go back to a, a place where there's, you know, warring tribal nomadic people and, and uh, you know, it, it's all overgrown and, and to go into a harsh situation. So there were quite a few Jews that just simply weren't willing to endure the hardships of going back to rebuild the temple. So they just said, I'd rather just stay here in Babylon. Daniel was probably mourning over that. Second, according to the book of Ezra, the Jews that did answer the call, the Jews that did say, you know what, I, I want to go back and rebuild the temple, when they got there, they encountered very stiff resistance and false accusations about their motives from the people in the land. And as a result of that, the rebuilding of the temple had stopped for a period of time. So these undoubtedly were weighing very hard on Daniel's heart. And he mourned over that situation and the people, and he lifted up his voice to the Lord in prayer. And it says that he did this for three full weeks. Now during those three full weeks, he restricted his diet. I I, I hesitate to say that he was fasting because, you know, a fast, you don't eat food. And uh, so he wasn't actually completely not eating food, but he had restricted his diet. It says that he, he ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine, uh, and he didn't anoint himself. He didn't wash himself, basically, his face and stuff. Um, why? Well, you know, I can relate to that. Sometimes things weigh so heavy on my heart. You know, I just, there's no joy. And, and, and I just, you know, I'm going to eat to survive, but, you know, I'm just not finding pleasure in anything. And something's just really weighing on my heart. And I think that's what Daniel was going through at this point. And he just wanted to spend that time praying. And he was mourning during that time. Verse 4 says, Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, 
I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now some people think that this man that's being described here in Daniel's vision and the angel that we're going to talk about here in verse 10 that touches Daniel and starts speaking to Daniel, they think that this is the same person, that, that, that Daniel's seen this vision of this, this angel, and then this angel touches Daniel. Um, I happen to disagree. And the reason why is because I can't escape the description in Revelation 1, verse 13, that John had of Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you. John here in in chapter 1, verse 13 says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as it is refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he said, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And that's Jesus Christ speaking to John there in Revelation on the island of Patmos. I believe what Daniel saw here was a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. The man that Daniel saw, his face had the appearance of lightning, you know, like a bright, blinding flash of just brilliant white that would just blind your eyes. And it reminds me of when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's recorded in Matthew 17, verse 2. It says, And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. This is what Daniel is seeing. It's very similar. And Daniel records that his eyes were like torches of fire. And I just think about that description of Jesus Christ with his eyes, the torches uh, you know, that piercing, penetrating look of Jesus Christ because He sees into the affairs of mankind. He sees your and my heart this morning. He knows our thoughts. He knows, he knows us. He knows, our, he knows us intimately. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And I can imagine those that are His enemies, that, that, that burning, penetrating, you know, look out of His eyes would instill fear and terror in his enemies. Well, verse 7, it says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. This is very similar to the Apostle Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. Remember when that happened? Paul was on his way to grab Christians from Syria, and he was going to drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial and probably be executed or at least jailed, if nothing else for their faith in this, in this Jesus Christ. This is before Paul became an apostle. You know, he was Saul of Tarsus. Well, when he, Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, the men who were with Paul, they heard a voice, but they didn't see anyone. 
Here, the men did not see the vision that Daniel saw. They didn't hear anything either. But man, I tell you, they sensed something was heavy going on. And it, it something dreadful. And, and it just caused them to really freak out. And they, they ran and hid themselves as a result of it. Verse 8, Therefore, I was alone. Uh, I was left alone when I saw this great vision. And no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me. And I retra- retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. You know, Daniel's strength had left him. He says his vigor was turned to frailty in him. Basically, he was completely emptied of his own strength and his own ability. And he was completely humbled. And if you can imagine an 80-plus-year-old man maybe 90 years old, flat on his face before the holy presence of Jesus Christ as he saw this vision. That total humility. Now, it's interesting. I, you know, I don't know how you pray. Um, uh, you know, when I grew up, of course, we had to fold our hands and close our eyes, bow our head. You know, that was the, the traditional thing that people did. Even in churches, like, okay, everybody, fold your hands. And maybe they don't say fold your hands. We did in our family anyways. And, um, and you know, Maybe sometimes uh, you're just driving in the car or something, or you're walking down the road or something, and you just start praying to the Lord, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. God hears your prayers no matter where you're at. We're to pray at all times without ceasing. Uh, and so you can't be on your face all the times without ceasing. You know, you're living your life, and so, and God knows that. And, and yet, you know, sometimes I look at the, the people who are Muslim, and, you know, they pray, what, five times a day? They get, and, and you see them, they're down on the ground you know, bent down on the ground. And, and sometimes, and I've seen that before, and I go, man, I wonder why Christians don't do that very often, you know. And of course, for them, they're doing it in hopes of gaining some kind of favor with Allah, right? Because uh, they don't want to, it's just, it's required for them. And for you and I, you know, God, like I said, God can hear us at any time in any place. But, you know, sometimes, and just in my own prayer closet, sometimes when I'm praying, it's like, it just doesn't feel right for me to be sitting and so I'll get down on my knees. And, and typically what I'll do, you know, I'll be sitting on a chair. I'll get down on my knees and I'll put my, I'll just kind of crouch over the chair. And, 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 and sometimes when I'm praying like that, I'm like, man, I, I, I just feel like I'm still too high. I don't know if you ever felt that way. I was like, I'm, I'm still too high. So yesterday as I was studying this and just reviewing it and kind of meditating on it, I thought, you know, I'm too proud. I, I need to get down on the ground. And so I got down on the ground in my, in my office there and, uh, I said, man, I'm still too high. And I got and I laid completely flat out on the ground with my face into the carpet, just laying there. And I thought, you know, I can't get any physically lower than that. And I thought, this is this is I wonder if that's how Daniel felt. Just I I, I just I, I gotta be as low as I can possibly be. I mean, that's humility. And of course he wasn't doing that to try to please God. It was just the presence of Jesus so overwhelmed him. And, and you know, I wonder if that you know, sometimes we as Christians, we maybe we lose that sometimes. And again, it's it's not like you're more spiritual if you're on your knees or on the ground or anything like that. Because God knows your heart. And if your heart's humble, that's what matters, right? Anyways, but here's Daniel laying prostrate with his face to the ground. And you think of Daniel, and we're going to hear it again. Daniel's going to say, oh, you know, he's beloved of God. Daniel here, such a godly man. There's no hint of any compromise in his life the entire 70 years that he's in Babylon. He's, he's just been on fire for the Lord God. 
He's been faithful to the Lord. This godly man, and yet in the presence of Jesus, man, he falls to the ground in humility. Verse 10, Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. So now I think, and this is my opinion, some people think it's the same person in the vision. They think it was an angel, and now the angel's touching Daniel. I think Daniel's just, he's had this vision of Jesus Christ, and now an angel comes and touches him. on. That's my own opinion. You can have your own opinion about that. But I think that an angel then touched Daniel, and Daniel was trembling. That vision of Jesus had so impacted Daniel that he's just in a state of fear and trembling. And I, and I, I, I love verse 11. He says, O oh, Daniel, man greatly beloved. You know, Jesus loves you and I. God, God loves you. And of course, yeah, his, his, he sees all of us. I mean, he knows our hearts. He knows our, he knows our motives and everything. And yet he loves us. And I think, you know, God, you know, he even knows what you're going to do this afternoon. He knows the next time you're going to blow it. The next time you're going to, you're going to hit your thumb or something, you're going to swear. Or the next time you're going to, you're going to, you know, tell a little, you know, a fib, a white lie. You know, we, we never really say we lie. We just say, well, you know, kind of held back a little bit. We, we kind of couch what we say, right? We kind of about what we do. But God knows every time that we're going to do those things, the next time that you and I are going to be unfaithful to him, whatever it is. And yet, with that foreknowledge, he still loves us. It just blows me away. God knows when we're going to sin against him, and yet he still loves us. Verse 12, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. The moment Daniel set his heart to understand, the angel says, the moment that he set his heart to humble himself before God, his words were heard. And God sent the angel to speak to Daniel. You know, sometimes when I have a difficult situation with a difficult person, a lot of times I'll be, you know, and I know that as a believer I'm supposed to be praying for that person, so I'll start praying for him. I'll pray, Lord, just humble that person. You know, make them see the error of their way. Change their hearts, Lord. And, and I pray that way. And yet, you know, here Daniel wasn't praying, you know, oh, Lord, humble the people of Israel. You know, humble these guys. He's, Lord, I need to humble myself. And Daniel humbled himself before God. Jesus, who sees all, saw his heart. God heard his words, and God sent his angel to speak to Daniel. And we can't escape the fact that the angel was sent because of Daniel's prayers. You know, sometimes, and I don't know, if I, I remember reading a study not too long ago, uh, you know, and you hear about them every once in a while, studies that show that people that pray, they're emotionally more healthy, they're more stable, they're physically more healthy than those who do not. And, and sometimes prayer is kind of treated like, well, it's just, it's just good for you. It's like taking a daily vitamin, you know, as long as you pray, you know, you got... And, of course, people that believe that say, well, it doesn't matter who you pray to as long as you're doing the motion of prayer or the action of prayer. But, you see, prayer is not just an exercise to make you and I feel better. 
when you and I pray for the, it's not just to, oh, okay, I feel better. I prayed about things. God hears and God answers your and my prayers. He listens. His ears are tuned to your and my prayers. God answers the prayers of his people. Verse 13, it says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. This angel that God had sent to, to deliver this message to Daniel, he was withstood by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Of course, this isn't like, you know, a man, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. You know, the Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In fact, Jesus, in several verses, calls Satan the prince of this world. But unlike God, Satan is not omnipresent. You know, God is everywhere all the time. He's in your heart. He's in my heart. He's over in Iran in that prison cell with Pastor Abedini. He's, you know, he's everywhere all the time. Satan's not. Satan's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time, but... He does lead a third of the angels that God created, the ones that were fallen, that rebelled with him. And he does lead a large army of, of, of demons. And evidently, there are demons who oversaw or control uh, world empires. Evidently, according to this scripture. And God's messenger was sent to Daniel, but he was withstood by this, this demonic force. It kind of gives you a glimpse into spiritual warfare. God's messenger was, was uh, withstood by this, this, this demon who is basically in charge or influences the kingdom of Persia. You know, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a, there's a warfare going on that we don't even see. Back in verse 2 and 3, it says that Daniel mourned three full weeks. And it keeps mentioning three full weeks or three whole weeks. Uh, he ate no pleasant food, no meat, or wine came into his mouth. He didn't anoint himself till the three whole weeks were fulfilled. And I was reading, I go, what's the significance of that? But then you come down to this verse, verse 13, and it says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Hey, that's three weeks. All I can surmise from this is while Daniel is praying and he's mourning, and he's definitely restricted his diet, not that that's you know, something, you know, we're to pray and fast, but unbeknownst to Daniel, while he's praying, there's a spiritual warfare going on. And every time you and I enter into fervent prayer, spiritual warfare is taking place. You know, for me, and I'm sure it happens to you, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but every time you kind of like set in your heart, you know, I'm going to spend some time praying, and you, and you start to set aside some time to pray, usually what happens to me, man, there's so many important things I need to take care of first. There's all these things. Well, I, okay, I'll, I'll pray, but i got to take care of that first. And then once I get all that arranged, then I can sit down and pray. And that typically happens, or it happens frequently. Same with reading my Bible. It's amazing how I can be studying in the evening. I don't like to study at night for, for church. I like to do it in the morning when I'm fresh, but sometimes it just happens. You're studying in the evening. I'll be reading the Bible, and I'll just start falling asleep. And I'm like, you know what? i gotta, I got to stop. I'll just pick it up in the morning. I'll go to bed, and I lay down on the bed, and I'm wide awake. Like, why is that? I can't sleep now. I'm like staring at the ceiling, you know. Why is that? Well, 
there's a spiritual warfare going on. And sometimes you get into prayer and you get into the Bible reading and then all of a sudden there's this distractions taking place. Now, I don't say there's, I don't think there's a demon behind every little corner. Like there's a demon of the flat tire and the demon of, you know, the demon of my burnt toast. And, you know, I don't believe in that. But there is spiritual warfare, warfare going on. And the heavenly hosts want to prevent you from entering into that realm where you are lifting up, you're interceding for people, where you're humbling yourself, where you're bringing your needs and the needs of others to the Lord God. There's a, there's a warfare going on, folks, that we don't even see around us. Now, I doubt that the enemies of our souls, I doubt that the demons get really get too excited when we rattle off a quick think, you know, unthinking prayer. Lord, you know, bless us food, amen. You know, I don't think they go, oh, wait, stop him from saying that, you know. <laughs> But when you and I are serious and we start entering into some serious prayer, that's when the enemy wakes up and they're like, we've got to stop this. And battles take place. Warfare rages. In Daniel's case, the warfare got so intense for this lone angel that Michael, the archangel, the angel that guards over God's people Israel, came to help him. And it's interesting, this spiritual warfare raged for 21 days. You know, it makes you wonder what would have happened if Daniel, you know, he's praying and he's mourning and he makes it to like 20 days and he goes, you know what? God hasn't answered my prayer. I don't feel like my prayers are doing it. I'm just going to stop on the 20th day. What would have happened if he had stopped on the 20th day and not persisted that 21st day? Makes you wonder. You know, sometimes you and I are tempted to stop praying when we don't get an answer. It's like, I don't know, man. It's just like, I just I give up. And I wonder, you know, if we would just persevere and just press on, if that's all that matters. We just need to press on long enough for the spiritual warfare to, to, to tilt the battle, so to speak. Then the angel tells Daniel in verse 14, Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days? For the vision refers to many days yet to come. Verse 15. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong, yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So Daniel, he's he's humbled. He's overwhelmed, and he's weakened by the vision. And God himself didn't touch Daniel to strengthen him. God sent an angel to touch Daniel, an intermediary to touch him and strengthen him. And I think that's a key thing for you and I in fellowship as believers, that God wants to use you and I to touch other people. I think it's so important to be in fellowship with other believers because we encourage one another. We strengthen. When, when you're weak, I want to be strong. And when I'm weak, I pray that you're strong. And we lift each other up in prayer and we touch one another. God uses the body of Christ to do His work in this world and in this generation. 
God wants to use each one of us. And so God used this angel to touch Daniel. Uh, Verse 20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also in the first, and I'm going into chapter 11. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So this angel here, he's going to return to fight with the prince of Persia. The battle isn't over. He's still fighting. And he mentions later that the prince of Greece would be coming. And what is that? I think, well, we know that, you know, the next empire that would come on the scene after the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, was the Greek Empire. And apparently there's a demon that was influencing Alexander the Great and influencing the Greek Empire. And he mentions that, uh, he says there, uh, no one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And I think he's referring to the fact that Daniel is an Israelite. And it, Michael is the prince. You know, he's, he, one of his jobs is to, to watch over the nation of Israel. That's what I think from scriptures. And this particular angel was not only sent to strengthen Daniel, but he was also sent to confirm and strengthen Darius the Mede. I don't know if you remember Darius the Mede, but he highly respected and trusted Daniel. He was a friend to Daniel. Interesting. Verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So there's four kings of Persia that are prophesied. Well, we know from history that they are Cambyses. I'm probably not pronouncing his name right. Cambyses, who is also known as Azarus or Azarus in Ezra 4, 6, he's mentioned. Smyrtus, who is also known as Artaxerxes, he's mentioned in Ezra 4, 7. And Darius Histapses, uh, and he's mentioned in Ezra 4, verse 24. That's three of the kings. The fourth king says who was, who was far richer than the preceding three kings, and he stirred up all against the realm of Greece. From history, we know that this is Xerxes. And he was notorious for his army and na- navy battles against, um, against Greece. But he would suffer bitter defeat. And this, this guy, the Xerxes, is also the Azarias of Esther 1, chapter 1, or the book of Esther. And many people believe this is the king that actually married Esther. And you read that story in the book of Esther. The mighty king of verse 3 and 4 is none other than Alexander the Great. And when he died, his kingdom was divided up, not between any posterity, but between his four generals. And then starting with verse 5 and going on through is a prophecy of the future conflicts that would arise between two of the four divisions of Alexander's kingdom after his death. Remember, he said the warfare would be long. It would be great. Uh, when we start reading this, it's amazing because there's a north. There's always mentions about the north, the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north would be the king of Syria. 
king of the south will be a king of Egypt. And there are different ones depending on who's in, 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 uh, on the throne at that time. But Syria is to the north of Israel. Egypt's to the south of Israel. That little nation, that little tiny of, uh, nation of Israel, smack dab in the middle. And those battles, they, you know, they wouldn't escape the, the conflicts that were going on as the, the, the kings of the north would come down to the kings of the south and kings of the south go up to the north and there would be all these battles that were taking place. Israel is right smack dab in the middle of it. Verse 5 says, Also the king of the south, so that's Egypt, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but shall, she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times." But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So the daughter, the king's daughter who's prophesied in verse 6 is none other than Berenice. Not that you know who Berenice is, but uh, she was the daughter of Ptolemy II of Egypt. And in order to make an alliance between Egypt and Syria, she was married to the king of the north at that time, who was Antiochus II Theos of Syria. And Antiochus had been previously married. His former wife was Laodice, probably where you get the name Laodicea. Uh, she formed a conspiracy and assassinated both Berenice and Antiochus. And the branch of her roots mentioned in verse 7 was the brother of Berenice, who was Ptolemy Energetus. It's like the energy bunny or the whatever. <laughs> he invaded Syria in revenge. So there's this, this battle going on, this revenge stuff going on. Verse 9, Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his uh, fortresses and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So the sons of the king mentioned in verse 10 uh, were the descendants of Seleucus, the second, Callinicus, and uh, one of them was Antiochus the Great, who would pass through, um, meaning he'd be coming through Israel on his way to Egypt. And in verse 11, the king of the south who was moved with rage is Ptolemy Philopater. Verse 12, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will, be cast, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mount and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. 
But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be with him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach, reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. A lot of history there. I can't get into all of it because I don't know it myself. But in verse 15, the king of the north was Antiochus the Great. And in verse 16, mentions the glorious land, and that was Israel. And it was overran and it was devastated by these Egyptian and Syrian armies fighting over the years, back and forth and back and forth. And there's the poor Jews right there in the middle suffering the effects of warfare. I think of you know the things that go on in, in the Middle East right now with ISIS and all this stuff. There's all these poor, innocent people that are just, they're just caught up in, in warfare all around them. You know, we are so protected here in this country. There are people that they've grown up in other places around the world that that's all they've known is warfare. We've always known bombed out buildings and people getting shot in the streets and stuff. That's, that's the normal for them. And for this period of time for Israel, that was the normal for them. There's just these battles going on and on, back and forth and back and forth between Egypt and Syria. In verse 17, the daughter of the woman uh, there mentioned was the first Cleopatra. And uh, she apparently was just a child at the time. Uh, and Antiochus uh, arranged for her to be married to a young guy by the name of Ptolemy Epiphanes. He was the son of the king of Egypt. And he was hoping, you know, a lot of times kings do that. They, they kind of, well, in those days anyways, they would marry off their daughters trying to make these alliances with these other kingdoms. And this is what this guy apparently did. And when they were old enough to consummate the marriage, Cleopatra sided with her husband against her father. So it kind of backfired on him. In verse 18 and 19, the ruler there, um, it says there in verse 18, after this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. That ruler was Scipio Asiaticus. I'm glad we probably didn't study that, and I didn't study in history, or I missed that day anyways. But he was a leader of the Roman army in Asian, Asia Minor, and he defeated Antiochus, who was, as mentioned in verse 19, killed later on. Verse 20 says, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant." And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. He shall devise plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great army and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. 
Yet those who eat at the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the time will be still. Excuse me, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. That's a lot to read there. But in verse 20, Seleucus Philopater was assassinated. He was trying to raise taxes. Uh, it's a dangerous thing to raise tax. <laughs> he was trying to raise taxes to pay the Roman tribute because his father, you know, this, this Roman guy, you know, conquered him basically or, or beat him in a battle, and then they imposed Roman prose taxes or tributes on on them. And so his, he was he was killed. Well, his son was trying to raise taxes, and he was assassinated as a result. And then in verse 21, there's this mention of this vile person. And we studied about him back in chapter 8. And this vile person is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was the second son of Antiochus the Great. The son of Seleucus, the guy who was assassinated for raising taxes, um, was actually next in line for the throne of Syria. But his uncle, this Antiochus Epiphanes, usurped the throne by trickery. The guy was just, he was devious. And uh, anyways, he got the throne. Verse 29. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall uh, take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So now in verse 29, Antiochus, or back in verse 20, Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, he had already carried out this successful invasion of Egypt, and it's described in verse 25. Well, in verse 29, he decides he's going to go again and attack Egypt. But this time, the Romans, they're steadily gaining power. You know, they're going to, they'll be, sooner or later, they'll be the world empire. But at this time, they were starting to gain power, and they repelled uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in this battle um, as he was trying to attack Egypt. And he was, on his return back from that battle, he turned his anger towards the Jews and the temple. And he vented his anger on them, and he tried to wipe out the Jewish religion. He went in there, he desecrated the temple, he slaughtered a pig on the altar, and he erected a statue of Zeus in the temple. That was that Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a type or a picture of the coming Antichrist. You know, in, in uh, Matthew twenty four fifteen. The apostles are asking, you know, Jesus, what are going to be the signs of the end times? And Jesus starts giving them, telling them what it's going to be about. And he talks about the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation, and he's, Jesus, when he was alive on the earth, that was after Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Jesus wasn't referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, but to another ruler who was going to be like Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Antiochus Epiphanes was basically a picture or a type of a future coming world ruler who would be on the scene before, the, before Jesus Christ's second coming. 
Verse 32, it says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. And apparently there were some Jews, according to the history books, there were some Jews who were traitorous to Israel that actually assisted um, Antiochus Epiphanes in desecrating the temple. Hard to imagine, but there were people that did that. But the people, verse 32, the second half, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The people who know their God, they'd be strong and carry out great exploits. During this time when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, there was a group of faithful Jews, and they were led by this old priest named Matthias. And he had five sons. And one of his sons was named Judas. And they basically, they became you know, a fighting force. They waged guerrilla warfare against Antiochus and his army. And these men became known as the Maccabees. And uh, they successfully, through guerrilla warfare, they successfully gained independence from the Syrians in 165 B.C. They managed to kick those guys out of Israel. And then they went to cleanse the temple. And that event is celebrated by a feast called Hanukkah. So, and it's to this day, you know, people, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. It's commemorating that time that's prophesied here in verse 32. And the descendants of the Maccabees, they ruled Israel until Israel was conquered by the Romans in 65 B.C. Verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame and by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them and to make them white until the end of the time because it is still for the appointed time. Excuse me. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed times. Now, Daniel's prophecies here, and we talked about the 70 weeks last week, um, Daniel's prophecies are strictly related to God's people, Israel. He pretty much skips over what you and I are living in right now, which is the age of the Gentiles, or what's known as the church age, because these prophecies all have to do with Israel. And uh, back in uh, chapter 9, between the 69th and the 70th weekend, we study it. If you, if, you, if you weren't here last week and you want to kind of catch up on it, you can listen to it on the Internet. But basically there is that seventh, 70th week that hasn't occurred yet. 69 weeks of this history, weeks of years have occurred. Uh, and in chapter 9 it says, Until the time of the end, many of the... Uh, excuse me, I'm getting a little mixed up here. There's that gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week that has not... It's, it's like it's not mentioned, and yet it's the time that you and I are living in right now, uh, the church age. And there in verse 33 here, it says, And those of the people who understand, excuse me, who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. And it seems like that many days there is referring to the age that you and I now live in. And it seems so insignificant for many days. But for many days, the Jews are going to have problems. And you look through the history of the last 2,000 years. The Jewish people, they've been persecuted, persecuted, persecuted 
generation by generation, basically. For many days the Jews shall fall by the sword and flame and by captivity and plundering. And some of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, and to make them white. Now we look at these prophecies, and we're going to stop here because up until this point, up until verse 35, all of these prophecies were fulfilled, well, especially these last verses, through Antiochus Epiphanes. But all these, all these prophecies up to now have been fulfilled. But when you get to verse 36 and you go on through the rest of this vision, these things have not occurred yet. They are yet future. And so, and, and sometimes in scriptures you get that, where there's a prophecy that has a near fulfillment, but there's also a, a future fulfillment that's yet to take place. And this is exactly one of those situations. But you look at these prophecies, and uh, you know, as sure as these prophecies have been fulfilled, when we go and we look at the rest of these prophecies, you can be sure that these prophecies are going to be fulfilled exactly as God said so in the future. Now, um, the book of Daniel was written by Daniel in the 6th century B.C. And for 800 years, the book of Daniel was basically held as genuine scripture. People didn't doubt it. They just, Daniel wrote this at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and they didn't question its validity. But in the 3rd century um, AD, there was an atheistic philosopher named Porphyry. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, he couldn't accept, of course, because being atheistic, he couldn't accept that God existed, much less that he was an omniscient or all-knowing God. And when you go and you look at all these, and I, I didn't really get too deep, you know, bring out too much of the history because I don't even know that history all that well, but this history was fulfilled exactly as written. And what stumps the liberal scholars, what stumped this Porphyry, this guy, was he said, how can this be written beforehand and be so 100% accurate to history? And so he surmised or he concluded that whoever wrote specifically chapter 11, but I think he felt the whole way of the thing about all of Daniel, that this person who wrote this must have lived after the events were prophesied in chapter 11 took place. And so he said, he claimed that Daniel was written in about 175 B.C. by someone during the Maccabean period. Because, you know, they would have seen all this history up until then. They could have wrote it all out. Um, and, and yet, for centuries... Liberal scholars had the, held this guy's views. Even recently, that's the same views that people have. They say Daniel couldn't have been written by Daniel because how could these things be fulfilled so literally? It had to have been written after the fact. There's no way it could have been written before because they don't accept you know, the fact that God sees the future and God knows the end from the beginning. Now, the interesting thing, and we're going to get into it next week, is talking about the Antichrist. And one of the signs of the last days, I mean, the Antichrist is going to stand up in the temple and declare that he's God. And you go, well, wait a minute. Even 100 years ago, there was no Israel, and there's no temple. Well, since May 4th, 1948, there's now Israel. There's no temple yet, but I tell you what, the Jews are pretty much ready. I mean, they're ready. As soon as they get the, the green light, um, they're going to build the temple, the third temple again. And it's like God 
you know, basically after 2,000 years of all these skeptics and all these liberals kind of questioning the validity of God's word, God brings Israel miraculously onto the scene in a day, basically. Israel was born as a nation after 2,000 years of, of non-existence, basically. And it's like God saying, I am here. You know, I am, and my word's true. And to reinforce that, around the same time that Israel became a nation, there was this little shepherd boy. And as a teenager, you know, he's kind of bored. He's walking around in the foothills by the Dead Sea. And he starts throwing rocks. You know, just kids do that, right? You throw rocks. And uh, he's throwing rocks up into, this, up into the side of this mountain, and he hears this breaking sound, like... Like, oh, that's kind of weird. <laughs> There's no houses around here. Uh, he goes up there, and here he's throwing them into this cave, and there he finds these clay pots in this cave. He had busted one of them. And inside these clay pots were all these scrolls. Well, we know them today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, I think it was a year or two ago, they were on exhibit. Some of them were on exhibit here at the uh, up in Minneapolis. God allowed a shepherd boy to stumble upon a cache or a cache of ancient scrolls in Qumran, which is we know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, among those scrolls was a complete manuscript of the book of Daniel. And that's, these scrolls were a hundred years or hundreds of years older than the oldest copy of Daniel that had been previously in existence. And it predates the time when this guy, this Potiphar, said that you know that this was written in 175 BC. The scriptures predate that. So it's impossible that this guy could have wrote it. I mean, it just basically, it just ruined the guy's argument. But the interesting thing is, even to this day, the philosophers, the skeptics of the Bible, they haven't addressed that issue. What about the fact that Daniel was written back then and not recently, after the fact? No one's addressed that. Of course, to address that means, of course, you have to acknowledge a lot of other things then too, right? That God exists and that God sees the end from the beginning. In Isaiah 46, 8, God says this, Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God sees the future. He knows the future. God guides the future. God knows your future. God sees you. God's guiding your future as well. You know, he who began a good work in you, he's going to complete that in you. I want to encourage you. Sometimes we get discouraged as Christians. Go, man, I've blown it again and again and again. It's like I, I can never get my act together. Well, Jesus Christ who birthed life in you, new birth, He's going to complete what he's finished in you as you submit to him, as you surrender to him. In 2 Timothy, and I want to close with this. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes this in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we, you know, these scriptures, they're not just history for us to read, but we can learn from it. We can apply it into our lives. And I look back at Daniel, and here's Daniel, a man who humbled himself before God. He set his heart to understand, and he, and he prayed, and he got on his knees, and he was praying, and God answered his prayers. And there was warfare that was going on. I want to encourage you 
The same for you and I. God sees your heart. You know, you and I, when you and I get into serious prayer, there's warfare that takes place. But God hears your prayers, and God answers your prayers. So I want to encourage you with that this morning. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll finish this chapter next week.